Welcome everyone to another Master Investor webinar with me, James Faulkner, and the Master Investor himself, Jim Mellon. As ever, thank you everyone for your questions for Jim. Um, we're going to begin with a general discussion that will cover some of the points that you've raised the most frequently. Uh, Jim will then dive into some of his best stock ideas and we'll have a more detailed discussion around those. Um, and finally, we'll have a quick fire Q&A, so please keep your questions coming via the Q&A button on the Zoom navigation bar that you'll find near the bottom of your screen. Um, as usual, being a live webinar, we are at the mercy of technology, so please do bear with us if we encounter any problems. This webinar is being recorded. We'll send you an email tomorrow with a link to the recording, or you can find the video recording on our YouTube channel and an audio recording via our podcast. Um, to help us to continually improve the, the webinar offering, we'd, we'd appreciate your feedback. So at the end of the webinar, um, you'll see a link to a short feedback survey. It'll take just a couple of minutes, so please do share your thoughts with us. Finally, um, if you haven't already, please do sign up to our mailing list at masterinvestor.co.uk to keep up to date with all our future webinars and other content. So, Jim, um, good to see you again. How are you doing? Good to see you, James. Um, I think we've got a few slides, what we're just going to delve into and have a discussion around those. So, if um, you want to begin with those. Uh, sure. Okay. Well, uh, thank you for attending, whoever's on the on the call. Um, I am still in Ibiza. Uh, it's still far too hot, as you can probably tell by my furrowed and moist brow. But, uh, and there's a baby in the background somewhere, um, and it, I can assure you it's not mine. <laughs> it's um, not mine either. <laughs> well, someone's got a child. Um, and, um, uh, can you hear it? I can. Um, it was, is that possibly Tim or Anthony? Seems to have stopped. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I'm it's not, but uh, anyway, we'll, uh, we'll solve for all. Sorry about that, everyone. Um, and um, as James said, technology is wondrous, um, especially <laughs> the owner of Zoom, which is now 100 million, sorry, 100 billion plus market capitalization. We are having a straw poll. It's worth more than IBM, isn't it, yeah? Zoom? Uh, yeah, is it really worth more than IBM or is it just valued more than well, IBM? Well, that's the question, isn't it? Yeah. Um, because I subscribe to it. You pay, I think it's like $120 a year for... Uh, access with sort of unlimited features and as many people as you want. But the question is, after all this stuff passes, and by the way, it will pass, I'm sure, um, are they going to be able to maintain uh, their level of subscribers? Um, and we were having a straw poll about this the other day. And one has to think if one has the courage, a bit like shorting Tesla, that it, you know, eventually if you could shut your eyes, go away for a year and not worry about margin calls, uh, this would be a good idea. And um, so, um, in other words, shorting Zoom and shorting all the at-home stocks. Um, so uh, the, uh, the reason that these stocks are so high and the reason the stock markets have been generally, not universally, but generally levitating in the way that they have in the last few months, we all know is down to unbelievable amounts of money creation. You can see it uh, illustrated on this slide. Um, ben Bernanke invented the expression helicopter money. And in a way, this is what's been happening. Uh, there are some of these programs are now coming to an end or have been curtailed. 
Uh, for instance, the UK furlough scheme uh, winds down very soon, um, and you've got furlough schemes elsewhere winding down, and indeed the checks that were sent to people in the United States for sitting at home in their pajamas doing nothing, um, which were very generous indeed, and in many cases, in fact, more than 50% of cases were more than these people are earning on a yep. normal uh, job are coming to an end or at least being uh, slashed in the relatively near future. You've also got central banks beginning, possibly not aggressively enough, but beginning to rein in their excessive uh, monetary creation. Now, you might think that that's negative for the two uh, main investments that I banged on about for the last year and a half, which are gold and silver. Uh, but I don't think uh, that this is uh, a, a nail in the coffin for these two metals because there are other factors which are coming into play for them both. Um, and you know, although I say almost parabolic in the rise in gold and silver, they're, in the case of silver, way below uh, previous highs. Uh, the Bunker Hunt uh, era the period in uh, 2012 when silver had a big run, and in the case of gold in real terms, still below uh, record highs, um, when there has been you know, considerable inflation since um, uh, the early 2000s. So um, my general view is that they're gonna go up because there are two main trends. In fact, I'll make, make it three main trends that one has to pay attention to. One is that central banks are now very big buyers of gold in particular, and to a lesser extent, silver. And the Russian and Chinese central banks in particular have been aggressive buyers, and in my opinion, will continue to be aggressive buyers as they move to away from holding dollar reserves. They look for other uh, types of reserves, and the obvious one uh, is gold. And so the buildup of reserves by Central banks uh, around the world is a major contributing factor to the uh, strong performance of gold in the last few months, but will be a continuing uh, underpinning of the gold price uh, going forward. The second is that the pandemic caused the jewelry market, uh, which is particularly dominant in the Middle East, in China, and very much so in India, to seize up because people weren't going out shopping, they weren't having weddings, and uh, gold is traditionally associated with weddings in many countries. Uh, and so retail sales of gold were not strong, other than coin collectors such as myself, who um, have them under the, the floorboards. I'm not telling you where, James. Certain <laughs> <laughs> houses, there's a stash of gold. Um, and um, so uh, the those retail investors are coming back now because the you know, even though we are having intermittent lockdowns, uh, most economies are, you know, opening up and are not at pre-pandemic levels in most cases, but they're getting towards 90% or so pre-pandemic levels. And so weddings are once again taking place and gold is once again uh, being bought, not in the quantities it was before, but nonetheless, it's a, another good underpinning um, of the market. And the third thing, is of course mine supply. Um, we had a pub quiz the other day, a virtual pub quiz for, we call it the boys pub quiz, but the average age I think on the call is about 60, so hardly boys, but nonetheless we like to think of ourselves as that. Uh, and uh, on the pub quiz we certainly drink like uh, uh, students, um, but the, um, uh, the, the uh, mine supply 
is not big at all. And it may interest some listeners that the entire uh, amount of gold that's ever been mined, including gold that's been lost, gold that's in jewelry, gold that's in central banks, et cetera, et cetera, would only fill three Olympic-sized swimming pools if you go back all the way back in time. So gold is really a scarce supply metal um, with a, an extremely good history of maintaining its value um, through the centuries. And so it's not surprising that in a period of uncertainty that gold is a go-to asset. Now, if you think about it, uh, the price of gold is up about 25% since the beginning of this year. Um, I don't know how much Tesla's up, but if we said uh, close to seven or 800%, I think that's about right. Uh, is Tesla such a valuable commodity? Are its cars so valuable that that company deserves to be worth more at one point a couple of weeks ago than every other car manufacturer in the world put together? Uh, I don't think so at all. So for my mind, gold could be the next uh, chip that the bros, the Robin Hood traders, those kind of American uh, swinging traders um, employ as their next go-to thing. Because we know that Bitcoin and all its associates are um, unreliable. Uh, you feel uncertain about whether you really own them or not. Uh, in the history of Bitcoin, there have been multiple thefts, as, as we're aware, from exchanges. And um, uh, Bitcoin has gone up a bit, but it's still half the level it was at its peak. Uh, gold, on the other hand, is very close if, to its peak, which was just last month. And uh, so my view, again, I'll reiterate this, is that gold today is around $1,950 an ounce, somewhere around there. Uh, silver is today around $27 an ounce. I think by the end of this year, we will see gold print at $2,500 at some point and silver print at $40. So there's still very considerable upside in gold and silver. So Isn't it the case though, Jim, that for, to see gold and silver go really parabolic, we need to see sustained higher levels of inflation. And the Federal Reserve disappointed um, some investors, didn't it, the other day with um, the, um, the statement about them letting inflation run slightly higher than the target rate of 2%. And that was a bit of a disappointment to some. Well, it may have been a disappointment to those who are economically illiterate, but the Federal Reserve is incapable, once the genie is out of the bottle, <laughs> to control the rate of inflation. I mean, do you remember, I mean, you don't remember, but in, in the 1970s, inflation in the UK got up to around the 20% level. Yeah, uh, And I'm sure the Bank of England did not intend inflation to be at 20%. It's because it couldn't control it. Once the, and Venezuela didn't in, 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 intend to um, have, you know, hyperinflation, nor did Zimbabwe uh, or any of the Weimar Republic. But the consequences of excessive money printing and combined what, what will become a tightening economy is that you will get inflation. We don't know when that will happen, but what we're seeing in gold and what we're seeing in silver is um, an anticipation of that. And I think the thing to look for about the major turning point, in other words, when you see the real parabolic rise will be, uh, and by the way, I would put platinum in alongside gold and silver as a buy, but platinum is, is much more illiquid. You have to be very careful with it than either of those two. I'd say the real turning point will come when uh, US Treasury bonds at the long end 
start to tick up in yield. And um, because the Fed can't keep on buying all the treasury bond supply. So we will start to see inflation being anticipated by strikes in US long rates. And that will be the point at which, if you're not already loaded up in gold, if you haven't enjoyed the ride so far, you should double down or you should make a significant um, uh, gesture in your portfolio towards the precious metals. But for pe the people who are disappointed by the fact that the Fed uh, said that inflation would only marginally be above 2% implies that they think the Fed has some sort of magic formula that controls the economy. It does not. And history will repeat itself and inflation will rear its ugly head. The period of benign inflation that we've experienced, partly because of globalization when China was exporting cheaper and cheaper goods to the United States, partly because the US dollar was strong and now it's weakening, and partly because of um, relatively restrained uh, fiscal and budget deficits, not particularly restrained, but relatively restrained, is over. And we can see that now in huge amounts of accumulated debt uh, in the United States. It will be $3 trillion of additional debt this year. Um, and in the UK, uh, similar, but not as large figures um, are to be seen. And in every other major economy, there's a fiscal looseness that, uh, and a monetary looseness that is going to lead to inflation. And so I say, once again, banging the table, make sure that your portfolio is well represented in these things. You can trade them in and out. There will be peaks and valleys, but the fact is that you're, you're better off just holding them, at least having a core holding for as long as you can. So the current pause for breath then in the precious metals markets is, is a buying opportunity then in your view, yeah? Well, if you say a pause for breath, yes. Okay, so silver is about $27 a share. I think the peak on this cycle was around $28 a share. Um, it's not much of a pause. Um, and the fact that they've held up so well in the last two or three weeks in the face of what appears to be a robust stock market, which they normally correlate against, um, is very positive. In the, in the gold's case, it's 1950. Uh, I can't really remember, but I think we got up to about $20.70. Sorry, $20.2007. <laughs> $2,070, am I right in that? And, and just yeah. Um, and uh, that's not much of a retracement, frankly, given such a volatile metal. Um, it is the case that ETFs are not getting the same amount of money into them as they did at the peak. But, you know, things change very quickly. The fundamentals of buying these are extremely positive. And um, they're, they're not over-owned. There's only a very small representation of gold and silver assets in institutional portfolios. Um, and so go for it. And, you know, as I said on the last time we talked, James, you know, I could almost stop here because, you know, there are other things that you can buy and other things you can do with your portfolios. But if you had it all in gold and silver, I don't think you'll go wrong over the next three or four years. You know, and as I say, put your head, put some lock the gold and silver away and switch off the radio and the Bloomberg terminal or the TV that relates the price of these things and come back in a few years' time and you will be a lot wealthier than you are now. So avoid the noise, sit back and relax. <laughs> well, no, it, well, I mean, that would be one strategy. I mean, not everyone, like you and me, is involved day-to-day -day in the, uh, the, you know, the money markets and uh, stocks and shares and stuff, but uh, and nor should everyone be involved because uh, there is no doubt that the average retail investor who plays in the options market will lose 99.9% .9 of their market. If they play in 
uh, CFDs, they'll lose 79% of their money. If they play in the stock market as a day trader, it's only a matter of time until they have nothing left. So uh, all of the bros who are thinking that they're, uh, you know, gods because they're making money in Tesla, Amazon, and so forth, are long until one day they wake up and it's all gone. It happens very quickly. We saw a precursor of it in March when markets seized up, the oil market seized up and went into backwardation. You've got um, uh, in, examples of stocks being sold for fractions of their true value in, in, in March. That will happen again. The, you know, the markets haven't just had one hiccup, they're going to have another big hiccup at some point as well. So that's gold and silver. Uh, let's talk about these US cyclical stocks. Unless you've got any further questions on gold and silver. I have to say that my uh, so-called years of experience did not prepare me for the concentration of um, investment in these fangs. Um, I think they're now called Fang Mars because there's been a couple of other ones that go in there as well. But uh, you know, I and T and Tesla should be in there as well. But it's uh, you know, it's not in the Fang denominator. Um, but they've had a bit of a shock since the last time that you and I spoke, and uh, you know, there's been a 12% re replaced retracement rather on on these stocks compared to a 7.9% retracement on the general uh, MSCI uh, cyclical stocks, um, which seem to be providing some market leadership. But we have to remember that in um, you know in a bad market, the good girls go down with the bad girls, so it's possible that uh, everything will go down. Um, uh, if we do have a, a real proper shakeout. Um, but the point I'm going to make here is that when nearly a quarter of the US uh, market is concentrated in just four stocks, and there is such an over-ownership because of ETF and index fund concentrations, plus an over-enthusiasm for these stocks amongst uh, institutional investors, plus all this retail army that's grown up with Robin Hood and um, Charles Schwab and so forth, um, you have to be very wary. And these companies are priced at a very high level um, uh, relative to their future earnings growth and relative to their size, because we know that very large companies like Apple will find it increasingly hard to grow. It's worth more than the entire FTSE 100 now, right? It is. It was. <laughs> it's a bit like, uh, I mean, I remember in... 1989, um, the Tokyo Imperial Palace was supposedly worth more than the whole state of California. <laughs> um, and obviously, if I'd been in a position to own the Tokyo Imperial Palace, I'd have done that trade. But um, <laughs> it wasn't to me. It was one of those hypothetical trades. It's completely ludicrous that a company like Amazon, uh, sorry, Apple. Uh, should be worth more than the entirety of our top 100 companies, which, uh, and you know, to the UK's credit, the London Stock Exchange's credit, contains some massive international businesses such as Diageo, um, such as BP or Shell. Um, and yet here's Apple um, at some vast multiple of historical earnings at a time when it can't bring out its new phone because there's supply chain issues. The new phone probably won't have the same features as other phones are coming out, uh, will have, including uh, VR. 
Um, and, uh, you know, they've done an amazing job of building up their services business and so forth. But does that make it worth $2 trillion? Which is, is there a sense, uh, Jim, that in, in some ways these businesses like Apple are becoming the new treasury bills? Because people are looking at them as kind of like almost risk-free investments, aren't they? Well, they might be, but again, <laughs> they're definitely not risk-free investments. <laughs> um, and then you've got to consider the other thing, uh, James, which is, uh, yeah, their companies mint money, but you know that has two levels of attraction. One is attraction to regulators who don't like the monopolistic nature of some of these companies. And undoubtedly, there'll be moves to break them up, to change them, and so forth. And the second is the attraction of their cash balances and their earnings to uh, tax men around the world. And um, as you probably know, most of Apple's earnings in Europe go through Ireland. Um, and I can't believe that um, there won't be like the UK Treasury, uh, the German uh, Treasury, and so forth, won't be having their eyes on these companies, which don't make much money in Ireland, but they if they pay a lot to the Irish Treasury, they will be looking to try and get some money um, off these companies from a taxation point of view. And that will apply in the United States as well. And the fact of the matter is that Amazon, which doesn't pay much tax, as we well know, anywhere, uh, and it has benefited from all sorts of loopholes involving not paying state taxes, and in many cases not paying sales taxes, there will be a major clampdown there. There will be, absolutely. They are companies priced to perfection at a time when they face regulatory and fiscal risk uh, and are too big to be able to grow in the context of the world at uh, very fast rates. And the other thing to note is that China and America are in the midst of a tech war and that tech war is evidenced by such things as TikTok being forced to divest its US business, Huawei being uh, prohibiting from buying US components and therefore effectively being driven out of business. It's a very easy thing for China just to say, right, no more Apple sales in China. You know, is that factored into the Apple price? I don't think so. So my point is, you know, don't get caught. Anyone who thinks these are treasury bonds um, needs their head examined. Um, I, I really think uh, that you should be very, very cautious. Yes, there may be, there'll be another 5, 10, 15, 20% up, but you are, paying, you are playing a really dangerous game of pass the parcel if you join all these idiots in America wearing their baseball caps backwards, um, looking at screens all day long and thinking this is a lot better than working until the day when it's not better than working. So, um... Obviously, the, the cyclical stocks have been, relatively speaking, outperforming, haven't they? So, is, in your in your um, view, is that the start of a, a the, the the long promised rotation back into value, or is it just you know is it just the fact that the froth is coming off on the tech sector? Well, that's a very good question. I mean, the point is that we don't really know if this bull market is going to persist or not. Um, it's long in the tooth. The monetary policy that's buoyed it recently. Uh, surely at some point has got to be uh, dialed down. Um, but there is no doubt that economies are generally improving. And um, in the US, I mean, the nature of the economies have changed. I mean, in the US, you're seeing uh, really almost back to pre-pandemic levels of activity, and that's without a vaccine, and with still some level of uh, lockdown. 
In the UK, we know the economy is growing by about 1% a week at the moment. And in some cases, activity, like for instance, uh, you know, road traffic has exceeded uh, the pre-pandemic level. Um, and uh, so, you know, the, the cyclical stops are probably not doing badly. We're seeing China back to pre-pandemic levels, maybe even slightly ahead of it. Um, and so companies that sell industrial machinery to China, companies that metal bash, uh, are probably doing better than most people think. And yet they're priced as though they're going out of business. And, um, and then you've got the other cyclical stocks that are related to the things that are not doing so well, at least ostensibly. And we've talked about this the last time. Airlines, hospitality businesses, uh, hotels. Um, and to my mind, uh, the, the best airlines, I, I said this in the last time, IAG and Delta will bounce back with a vengeance um, uh, relatively soon because we are no longer in a pandemic, we're in a case-demic. You can see that, James. Mm, yeah. A huge number of cases, um, not everywhere, but the growth in cases, but where are the deaths? You know, yeah. where are the deaths? Um, there are remarkably few deaths. Not just deaths, know, hospitalization levels are at rock bottom to aren't they? They are, and um, I read that there are 192,000 less hospitalizations in the UK to date this year than there were for 2019. That's despite COVID. Yeah. And that's partly because people don't want to go to hospital if you've got cancer or you've got some, you know, some ailment. They want to potentially catch COVID. But let's face it, the, there are two explanations for this. One, it, well, three. It's the second time I've corrected myself and said three rather than two. One is that they're getting better at treating it, uh, the, 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 the uh, disease. And, you know, we've seen that ventilation is a discredited um, thing, only to be used in the absolute premise. Um, you know, all the conversions of Dyson factories and tractor plants to making ventilators was, I mean, I'm just amazed at how primeval, how medieval the response of governments around the world uh, was to this um, pandemic. The second thing, and, and so they have better drugs now. So they've got, you know, methodexazone, you've got, uh, remdesivir, you've got, uh, there are a few other treatments, and as a result, the mortality rate of people who are hospitalized is less. The second thing is that we know that it affects the old and the people with morbidities much worse than it does the rest of the population. So the old are not stupid, and they're self-sheltering to a much greater extent than they would have done prior to this uh, pandemic. Um, and that's a positive. But the third, and I think the thing that should not be underestimated, is that all vaccines lose virulence as they propagate or proliferate, because they don't have a mind, obviously, but uh, not vaccines, I'm talking about viruses. All viruses lose virulence as they, they uh, proliferate, because they are designed to into as many hosts, i.e. people, as possible. And if they kill their host, then they can't go on to the next host. So over time, in every single case, viruses lose their virulence. I mean, it wasn't that there was a cure for SARS that stopped it from going around the world and killing half the population. It was that it lost its virulence. And the, so is the same happening here, in my opinion. Um, uh, so, you know, there are a whole load of reasons to be optimistic. And then the last, uh, there's not a, this is not related to those three points, but the last thing is that there will be 
a vaccine. Um, the unfortunate people of Russia are about to be treated to their own version, um, but uh, you know, leave them to that one. Um, uh, but we'll have a proper vaccine, and we may even have it by Christmas. So it's not surprising that stocks like Delta um, or Whitbread um, are going up. And then the other cyclical stocks that are doing well are the mining and metal stocks. I'm not talking about gold mining. I'm talking about mining basic materials. Uh, so Rio Tinto, you know, last week, the CEO had to resign because uh, the company uh, tragically blew up a couple of sacred Aboriginal caves in Western Australia for a de minimis amount of iron ore to extract. Um, and you would have thought the share price would go down. Not a bit of it. It's at an all-time high, as far as I can see. Um, and uh, so that reflects China's recovery, demand for raw materials rising again, and that demand for raw materials will start rising elsewhere again, which will get onto one of my, um, my themes later on, which is an other opportunity for investors to make some money. Um, so stay away from the fangs is the next slide. Um, and then we turn to the UK. I, I don't know if this looks anything like um, the UK. I suppose it's supposed to be a bulldog, but... Um, uh, so we're, we're coming to the UK. Now, here, you know, is the government incompetent? Well, I mentioned that most people think it is. Uh, is it incompetent to the point where it's going to actually damage the economy? Um, the answer may be no, actually, funny enough. And um, uh, despite uh, the best efforts of the British government, flopping and you know, flip-flopping on you know, what we should be doing, what we shouldn't be doing. You know, one week it's go and dine out and congregate in cinemas and in the park and play sports, and the next week it's the rule of six, uh, all of which is probably bad advice. Despite that, the economy seems to be bouncing back better than most people would have forecast. There was only one forecaster that got it right, and that was the Bank of England's own uh, internal economist, Andy Haldane. Um, and I think we'll find in quarter uh, three that we're going to have a, a pretty strong rebound as well, and possibly in quarter four of this year, such that we'll be at back to pre-pandemic levels in the UK, uh, possibly by the end of this year, and the latest in the very first two months of next year, which is not a bad recovery, and it won't be a bad recovery relative to most other major economies as well. Uh, Compounding the uncertainty about the UK, of course, is all this stuff we're fostering about Brexit. And I'll tell you right now, in my opinion, there will be a deal done because it's in everyone's interest to do it. And this is last minute wrangling, which always happens with the European Union. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and there will be some deal that will be announced and Sterling will prove probably to be a good buy at this level against the Euro and against the dollar. And it absolutely amazes me because I read this research on a daily basis. Um, you know, these financial forecasters, one minute it's uh, sterling's going to go up and, uh, and then uh, the next minute it's going to go down and they are always, always wrong. And there is one man uh, called Anatol Kaletsky and I, I subscribe to his stuff. I subscribe to it because he is the best contraindicator of markets in the world. Uh, two weeks ago, he wrote that he changed his mind after markets were up 50% and, he'd now, and he was pessimistic and he was now uh, going bullish on markets and promptly the whole US tech sector collapsed. It was a, the best indication. 
And today he wrote an article about how it was time to move out of sterling assets. They were the dog of the year. They underperformed, which is true. Um, and, um, you know, they were going to continue to underperform because acts of self-economic harm, blah, 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 the usual stuff we read about every day. And lo and behold, the pound's up 1% today. And I've got no doubt he will be proved wrong on this stock, stock market as well. So I think that um, in preference to any US stocks, um, and this will be reflected in my list of stock recommendations, it would be better to go for some UK stocks. Uh, after all, it's our country for most of us on this uh, webinar. And uh, the pound is, you know, in some cases it's overvalued, in some cases it's undervalued, but generally it's undervalued against most currencies. And uh, so I would recommend uh, buying the British pound. The situation in the UK uh, is not as bad as people would like to make it out. I don't know why we have a press that is so negative on its own country. Maybe other countries are like that as well, but it's, uh, it's incredible to, to see it. Um, and I think that over time, the government's incompetence will resolve itself, and we may see it as being uh, not as incompetent as we think at the moment. At least I hope that's the case. But in any case, I think it's time to buy some UK stocks. And in my list at the end, I'll, I'll, I'll mention that. Um, now, US and the election. Uh, yesterday, I, I spend, uh, when I go for what some people would call a run and I call a shuffle because it's very slow run. <laughs> um, I listen to podcasts and, um, you know, I can recommend good podcasts to anyone who's interested. Um, but one I was listening to is called Hacks and Axes. And it's with David Axelrod, who is one of the most experienced U.S. pollsters and worked for a number of uh, presidential campaigns. Very, very experienced person. And uh, the view there is that it's likely that Biden will win. And um, Nat Silver, Nate Silver rather, who's the most uh, famous of the statistical pundits in the United States uh, on elections, um, it's got every election apart from Brexit, right? Um, feels that uh, Trump's got a 25% victory and Biden's got a 75% chance of victory. But what's quite interesting is that the betting odds on uh, both of them have narrowed considerably in the last few months. And that normally uh, the bookies are the best predictors of all. And uh, the betting odds reflect um, a narrowing between the two. And the other thing that I learned was that in the last six elections, Florida, which is the prime uh, swing state, um, the kind of state that you need to win in every presidential election has uh, cast 45 million uh, votes in the last six elections. And there has only been an 85,000 vote gap between Democrats and Republicans in those six um, elections in Florida. And we'll all remember the um, hanging uh, Chad uh, election in Florida between Al Gore uh, and Bush when the, uh, it went to the courts and everything to decide who'd won the election. Um, that probably won't happen this time because there's a lot more postal votes and because the technology is actually better than it was in the year 2000. But um, if Florida, and you watch that, it's one of the first states to report in the United States, uh, of major states, if it goes either way, Donald Trump or Joe Biden, the election will probably go that way. 
And it's very narrow in Florida at the moment, very, very narrow, one or 2% either way. So we don't know who's gonna win. Um, you have to believe that if Biden wins, it's going to be bad for the stock market, at least initially. And if Trump wins, it's going to be a relief for the stock market because the level of tax increases, the level of intervention, uh, the level of pork barrel politics, which is spreading money around um, to suit your supporters will be less under Donald Trump than it will be under Joe Biden. That doesn't make me favor either one of them. I can't believe it. Um, you know, the, they've got two such bad candidates, but that's the way it is. And we're not, we're not voting in the election. Um, uh, so, but it will be very important for stock markets and the likelihood is that Biden will win and that will be bad for, for the US market. So take that into account in your calculations. Um, and then here's some stock ideas before we get into uh, sort of James and I chatting away. And um, uh, these stock ideas are, uh, I'm just looking at my screen where I don't have a picture of James and myself on it. Um, concentrated really in what you might call some boring old uh, stocks because I'm just not going to play the technology game at this stage, um, believing it to be extremely dangerous and there's much more money to be made elsewhere, especially in gold and silver. Um, so I think RTZ is a good company. And as I said earlier, it's at an all-time high, all high. It's probably got further to run, um, despite all the problems there. And it pays a good yield, um, you know, the forward yield of nearly 6%. Um, it won't be told to reduce its dividend by governments as the banks here for instance have been told um and then we've got the oil related stuff and i do think that oil will rise pretty dramatically in price over the next um a few months i've got a friend who's an extremely good oil person and he thinks that by first quarter next year we'll see the oil price which is currently just as a reminder around 40 dollars a barrel up to about $120 a barrel, largely because of economic recovery and because the shale oil sector in the US has had no drilling on it or very little drilling uh, for the past few months. Uh, and partly because the Saudis um, are maintaining restraint in terms of the amount of oil they're pumping. So uh, you could see a squeeze in the oil price. Um, if you do, then you'll see a reaction in oil stocks. And ones I favor uh, uh, Shell, um, Total from France, uh, BP, and Schlumberger, which is the world's biggest drilling services company, Repsol in Spain, where I am at the moment, uh, Diamondback Energy in the United States, which is a small, uh, relatively small energy company, but nonetheless very interesting, and Pioneer Natural Resources, which uh, is relatively small again, but a $15 billion company, but looks pretty good to me for an oil play. So um, I would be, uh, you know, loading up in oil because if, if you look at all the, the commodities or most commodities at the moment, they're going up. There's absolutely no, and that's because of China's recovery and because of Asian recovery and American recovery. And we're going to see the same thing apply to oil. And so uh, don't discount uh, the, uh, the idea that oil might be, have a spike up to 120 or at least over $100 by the beginning of next year, which we're not that far away from can't believe we're already in the third quarter. Um, and then other companies that I think would be of interest would be Anglo-American, which is a sort of, uh, you know, it mines everything basically. Uh, to me, that's a, an interesting company. Again, 
with a reasonable yield, and um, that could do quite well. Um, you've got gold mining companies like Centamin, Sandfire, Pan-African Resources, uh, Condor, um, Pasifino, and Dart in Australia, which I mentioned the last time, which is a very small uh, company, but has nonetheless been well-financed recently, as in Pasifino. Um, and all of those, I think, are interesting plays in the gold uh, and silver sector. You've got the gold ETF. It's a relatively small one. It's only a billion dollars, but that's a good way of playing the gold silver miners. Uh, gold silver is much harder to play in terms of miners than gold. There aren't that many of them uh, out there. Um, and then I like um, Japan. Continue to like Japan. And I would just buy a, a trust there. And the one that we've got, we've got a few of them, but the one that is our biggest holding is in Fidelity Japan Trust, which seems to me a well-run, diversified uh, portfolio between larger and smaller companies in Japan. And one has to bear in mind that 50% of Japanese listed companies have as much cash on their balance sheet um, as their market capitalization. So um, you know, there's a great opportunity in Japan. And then the last slide I've got here, which may be the point of discussion for us, is a slide from uh, the 19th century. Nothing really has changed. It's exactly the same. These are the idiots who are lining up to have their heads chopped off um, by the uh, stockbrokers uh, due to overenthusiasm and greed, which is a characteristic of the US market at the moment, uh, punting in what effectively might, might as well be casino chips like Tesla. Uh, and they will, the ones today will meet the same fate as the ones from the 19th century. Nothing changes. And as you will see on this slide, the ones who are going into the stock exchange are called the Lambs Brigade for a good reason. These are lambs led by the internet, by social media, by enthusiasm, and by a stupid, foolhardy, ignorant desire to get rich quick. Very rarely happens uh, into the place where their heads will be chopped off. And with that, James, that's my little slide presentation. Great, thanks for that, Jim. Um, we're going to move on to the quickfire Q&A. Um, first question is from Kevin, um, and that's, are you still bullish on Lloyd's bank shares? Now, this is one that you missed off of today's presentation, but I think you, you included Lloyd's last time you spoke, didn't you? I did, and I would still buy Lloyd's bank. I mean, I think it's it was about 30p. It's now 26 or 27p, so it's not been a great performer, but it's an enormous and liquid stock. And no doubt it will start paying dividends again next year. And, you know, it will be on a forward dividend yield of 7 or 8%. So it's definitely not one to sell. But I will tell you that I am pissed off with Lloyd's. I think Lloyd's is, it has an enviable position as the dominant retail bank in the UK. Uh, and yet, uh, I wouldn't say it's mismanaged its position, but the board has presided over a number of outright scandals. One is they have allowed Antonio, what's his name, Horto, you know, Portuguese guy, to get away with uh, two affairs, as I understand, with people, while he's married, um, in Lloyd's. Um, uh, and, you know, if he was a US guy, he would have been out on his ear. Yet he's allowed to retire, uh, I think it's early next year, with a huge payoff, pensions, blah, blah, blah. And he's the man who's presided over the PPI scandal and the Reading branch, as you may recall, which lent a whole load of money to people and then pulled in the money, including Noel Edmonds, of all people, 
um, uh, and then uh, extracted value from those businesses had liquidated. The perpetrators went off to Spain, enjoying the high life, champagne, speedboats, um, et cetera, et cetera. And yet the board of Lloyd's persists as the same board. How is it that in the modern age, institutions can allow a board like that to be uh, still in situ? It is incredible. This is our, one of our largest, if not the largest financial institution, I guess HSBC is because of its Asian interests, but it is an absolute disgrace. So I'm pissed off with them, but that doesn't mean to say that you can't profit from their shares. But in my view, his payoff should be withheld. The board should resign and it should be an entirely new board. Okay. Um, next question from... Thank you, Peter. Kevin, for allowing me a rant. <laughs> Next question from Peter. Um, as a former Asian expert, what are your views on the Chinese markets? Well, I like the way he said former. <laughs> I don't know why you asked this question then. Um, look, I mean, you know, the Chinese markets are very speculative, very opaque, still dominated by state-owned enterprises, government interference, all that sort of stuff. Um, and but the entrepreneurial ones, the, the, the Ten Cents, the um, Alibabas, etc., are, while extremely good companies, are very highly priced. And remember that China is in a bitter tech war with the United States. And whatever anyone thinks, the advantage lies with the United States. China is highly dependent on U.S. technology to maintain its tech sector, and the this president uh, and the next president, whoever it is, because both of them have said more or less the same thing, are going to, as far as they can, strangle China's technological development because of what they see as um, outright theft of intellectual property, uh, challenge um, uh, mounted by China against their own tech giants, uh, and of course the opportunity for Chinese tech to be manipulated to the disadvantage of the West. And um, so, uh, you know, I would, I think at the last Master Investor, James, I recommended buying Chinese shares. They've had a pretty good run. They've certainly done better than every other developed market. But I think now that you should probably, uh, you know, selectively exit rather than be a big China bull at this stage. Okay. Um, next question is from Colin. Please ask Jim what he thinks about the future of the euro. Yeah, it's another one. I mean, you know, the euro is a tale of two halves. So you've got the very strong northern bloc, uh, economically viable, perfectly self-sustaining. Uh, and then you've got the indigents in the south, uh, the ones who are constantly racking up more debts, uh, constantly having bigger uh, fiscal deficits uh, still, in some cases, endemically corrupt, um, and where companies are sustained by the benevolence of the state. Um, you don't have a common monetary policy, really, uh, that fits all those disparate countries, and you certainly don't have a common uh, fiscal policy. And I don't think there will ever be, or at least not for a while, a long time a common fiscal policy. So the euro's strength at the moment is partly down to the fact they have the solidarity uh, bond for the pandemic, uh, 
which has not yet been issued, by the way, um, and that will be doled out to uh, poorer countries, um, effectively coming from richer countries. It was, it's partly a loan and partly a grant, as you know, but it's mostly down to the fact that the US dollar has been weakening. And, um, you know, against almost every currency in the world, the US dollar has significantly weakened since March. And uh, it's not because the euro is a particularly strong place to hold assets. It's because the US is now perceived to be a weaker place to hold assets. So my view is the future of the euro is not positive. I still think there'll be more countries that will leave uh, the eurozone uh, in the coming, you know, years. Um, and especially if they see that Britain, for all you know, all the negative press at the moment, makes a success of it, and uh, the ultimately the idea of rich guys paying the poor guys sort of month a yearly allowance is not one that the rich guys will be very happy about for a long period. So it's an unsustainable construct because there is not a common fiscal policy and the monetary policy is not yet properly common. So the future is not great, but you know, if you're a trader, uh, Euro is one way of betting against the US dollar, but you'd be better off today buying the British pound, buying the Japanese yen in particular, uh, and well, even buying uh, some of the smaller Asian currencies like the Singapore dollar or the Indonesian rupiah. Okay. Next question is from Michael. What are the prospects for palladium, um, a precious metal with some interest in industrial applications like the car industry? Oh, it does have, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a, I don't know anything about palladium, to be quite honest, and so I'm, I can't answer that. <laughs> I would uh, go somewhere else for that. It might, be, it might be worth just widening that one out in terms of are there any particular, are there any metals in particular that you think are going to have a strong run given the sort of change, changes in technology that we're seeing at the moment. Yeah, I mean, copper is an obvious example because copper is mm. very intensive in electric cars, believe it or not. Uh, lithium is another example. Um, and in the tradition of Donald Trump wanting everything to be closer at home, um, American lithium miners and watch this space will be interesting. Um, so next time, I hope to tell you about an American uh, lithium miner. Uh, in fact, I'll, I will do that next time. Um, but for the moment, I'm just, uh, you know, lining things up for that. But um, copper, I think, is really interesting. And on this, um, on this uh, recommended uh, slide set, uh, there is Venturex Resources. It's got a really oven-ready copper mine. It looks really, really good to me. Um, and it's, it's cheap copper in the ground, all proven reserves. Uh, someone will come along and buy that. So that might be one to look at. Um, lots of questions about longevity space, Jim, um, and you've had some interesting news recently, haven't you, with Regent Pacific, so I just wondered if you want to talk a little bit about that. Well, I don't, I'm not really involved in that. Um, Jamie Gibson uh, has done that, um, but they basically bought a company that provides a biological clock, uh, which is dressed up as something called young.ai, it'll be launched quite soon, where you go on. It takes a photo of you, you put in some basic uh, parameters such as your blood pressure or your age or your, um, you know, there's a few other sort of aspects to it. And it will tell you what your biological age is compared to your uh, chronological age. And that will have useful applications in the future, I think, for the finance industry because insurance companies may end up using that sort of data. 
um, and it will have useful, useful applications for drugs, particularly in trials, to see if by taking, let's say, a longevity drug, such as the ones that are in development at Juvenescence, there might be a dial back in terms of uh, biological age relative to chronological age as a result of taking drugs over two or three years. So it's an interesting but very early stage uh, concept, but it is, um, it's, a, it's a pretty good thing for Regent, which at long last has had some share price movement. But, you know, it, it more than doubled, in fact, it trebled on the news. So it's, um, it's welcome news for Regent Pacific shareholders. In terms of the broad longevity space, there have been two recent trials that have been disappointing. One is Restore Bio, which was using rapamycin in an analog form Try and improve the uptake of flu vaccines in the elderly. That trial did not work. Um, and then there's Unity, which its most recent trial for osteoarthritis in the knee using a senolytic drug didn't work. But there are pretty good reasons. Our team has looked at the reasons. Obviously, we want to learn from those failures in our own company. And uh, there is some pretty exciting stuff going on in longevity, including um, a phase two in organ regeneration. That's one of our companies that's starting right now. We're regenerating liver tissue in, un, in terminally ill liver, uh, liver failure patients in the United States. So the FDA has allowed us to do that. And then we'll get into regenerating the thymus, the pancreas, and the kidneys. And if that works, it's like I've always said, and you know, one of the aspects of longevity science will be um, regarding our bodies as sort of classic cars, with, um, which can go on forever and ever and look as gleamingly new as the day they came out of the factory. Um, but the, the parts inside are regularly replaced, and that could be one aspect of the longevity science that I'm so enthusiastic about. And I will say that also juvenescence itself is likely to go public in the next six months. So watch this space, and you know the, the breadth and uh, quality of the team and the products there is really fantastic. All hats off to my colleagues who've done such a great job there. Um, so um, we're, we're we're hopeful that. You know, this will be a real science and it will be reflected in real and big investment uh, and big stock market success. Um, and finally, what about the other big theme? Because we're all desperate to read Moo's Law, when's that going to hit the shelves? Well, you know, another profession that is, that is incredibly archaic is the publication profession, the publishing profession. And I don't know if you've had any experience of it, James, but, you know, obviously Master Investor is hot off the press of, you know, as soon as the news comes out, but the actual book profession is one of leisurely lunches, non-stop editorial <laughs> experience. Um, you know, everyone, a bit like the film industry, getting their paws into whatever's going on. And uh, my book is basically finished. Um, and uh, I've got a couple of little things I need to tidy up, but it won't be out until November. But uh, it'll be out in time for our virtual virtual master investor on December yep. the we're going to have some really exciting speakers and one of the great things is that they don't need to be physically present so we can get them in from California or from Asia or wherever and we will get them in and it's going to be really you know a fascinating uh, day of um, investor education I, I'm, going to, I'm going to be riveted because for the first time I'll be able to rather than dash around from one stand to another be able to you know watch the whole thing um, myself, but it will be out in November. And the last interview I did um, uh, was last week on Friday, uh, and it was with Ethan Brown, who is the is the founder and the CEO of Beyond Meat, which everyone's heard of. 
And by chance in our household that night, we were eating Beyond Meat burgers. So um, from being a sort of PR controlled conversation to begin with, it became a very relaxed and good conversation because he could see that we were about to eat his product in Europe. And, uh, and beyond that, he um, also is a lover of hounds and his hound was in the visible distance in his house and my hands were also there as well so if you connect over the little things sometimes the bigger things are easier to do so that's that was the last interview almost there james and is there anything that you can give readers uh, listeners sorry in terms of um a sneak peek in terms of any any specific stocks listed companies at the moment what what might be worth looking at well they're very obviously beyond beyond me excluded <laughs> Yeah, I kind of liked uh, what he had to say, even though it's an expensive company. Yeah. You know, you, you know, it's a bit like maybe buying Tesla with $7 billion market capitalization seems high at the time, mm. but then it's not. Um, but uh, the, I think that the, there will be recommended portfolios at the back of the book as usual, um, and the description of every single company we can identify in the space, plant-based, uh, cell ag space, uh, and fermentation derived space as well. Uh, and um, so there'll be a complete compendium of everything that is available. But I just want to give you maybe a, most people would think of Cell Ag as being only about food, but uh, there is a company called Vitro that we're investors in, which makes leather and makes now, it's not like it's a science fiction thing, makes leather that's from cells which is identical or better than the leather that is derived from calves, uh, which is where leather comes from at the moment. Um, and uh, with a lot less tanning and therefore a lot less environmental impact. And uh, the big uh, fashion houses are all signed up to use their leather rather than the leather from, um, from, from animals. And it's identical, right? So it's actually identical. And then the second one is cotton. And I didn't know this until I started doing the book. But there's a company um, called Gally, G-A-L-Y, which uh, is making cotton in a lab. Now, that, the price of that cotton at scale will be one-sixth the price of cotton produced in the field and then processed in factories and blah, blah, blah. And what I didn't realize is that the average cotton field uses up to 2,000 pesticides to keep it clean from pests. And some of those pesticides are pretty awful. Um, and seep into the water supply. And the average t-shirt production, one t-shirt, uh, uses as much water as 2,500 families use in a day. So this is a white space that you wouldn't, wouldn't have thought about, I don't think anyone else would have thought about, that is being addressed by this new agrarian revolution, which is super exciting. And so um, I hope and all the proceeds of the book go to the Good Food Institute, which is the leading uh, advocacy group for, you know, changing agriculture, for lessening emissions, for lessening animal cruelty, uh, all the good things that come with the new agrarian revolution and all the books of proceeds go to that. So I do hope people will consider it for their Christmas stockings when it comes out in November. Good stuff. I'm sure um, readers are, you know, really looking forward to reading it. I, I definitely am. And um, thanks, okay. for, um, thanks for speaking to us today, Jim. Uh, it's been really an interesting discussion. Um, Thanks, Steve, we'll be back on there in about a, a month's time, right? Yep, sure. Looking Thanks forward to it. Thanks, James. 
Um, just a final reminder that we'd really appreciate your feedback, so please do take our survey. Um, the link is in the chat and you'll also receive it via our follow-up email. Take care, everybody, and we'll see you next time. Thanks, James. Bye-bye, Bye-bye.